0: Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 1 verses 26 through 31. One of our main themes in our time in Ephesians 5 this morning, which is going to be the text for our sermon, is that what Paul says there about marriage is ultimately an exhortation to live with the grain of reality. It is not rules that he is imposing upon the world, but he's rather simply pointing to how the world is. And as part of that background, an essential part, perhaps the most important part, would be Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And so we read this passage simply as an example of that grounding in creation. Genesis 1 verses 26 through 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 33. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians. Oh, I see. Okay, so I have to introduce this reading a bit here. So our text begins at verse 21. But as you'll notice, if you have your Bibles open, that is in the middle of a sentence. And so I want to provide context. And so for the sake of that context, I'm going all the way back to verse 15. Our text, however, begins at verse 21. All right, Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 15. giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we gather together around your word, we pray for the gift of wisdom. That we might hear and receive this word as you would have us hear and receive it. We pray that by your Holy Spirit's presence as a free gift of your sovereign grace, you would cause this word to be effective and fruitful in our midst and that in all of it, you would direct our attention to our Lord Jesus Christ and the promises you have given to us of the glory of your church. We pray that you would do this for us through this, the preaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ Here we are in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 and I have a bit of a confession to make about how this series has been structured. Some of you may remember a time several weeks ago when we spent what seemed like a bit longer than necessary in Ephesians chapter 4. And there were all sorts of good reasons for that, many themes that we were able to bring out, themes about the Catholicity of the church that were a particular passion of mine, and so it was a joy and delight to sort of linger over Ephesians 4. That, that was the main reason we did it. But I also had an ulterior motive, and that motive was that I did not want to be stuck preaching on Ephesians chapter 5 until after Mark Garcia was here for our Pentecost festival I wanted a chance for all of us to hear his way of situating that material, the way the scriptures speak about these things, not only for our sake as a congregation, but more my sake personally, feeling challenged about how to preach on this. Now, one of the reasons I want to highlight that context of Dr. Garcia's time with us last weekend is I am well aware as we come to this text that I cannot say everything. There is so much we could say flowing from this, many questions that will remain. And so I am well aware that we cannot say everything, but I am also aware that something needs to be said. So I want to assume to some extent the context of what Dr. Garcia did with us when he is here as we address this passage, but I'm also trying to sum up and put in one place what I think the conclusions are from his time. So, if you were here with us last weekend, that will be helpful. If you were not here last weekend, you'll be just fine. My goal is to summarize those things as well. Why does something need to be said? Well, as Dr. Garcia said, we are aware that what God's word says here is deeply countercultural. That it speaks in a way that many in our time and place would be uncomfortable with us. Words like head and submit are not ways that we ordinarily talk. And it is important that we hear these words counterculturally. However, it is important that we hear them counterculturally ourselves, not simply as a way of looking out there, pointing out there in the world to things that need to be corrected. This is because I agree fully with Dr. Garcia that there are two problems that need to be addressed. There is, on the one hand, the problem of our culture's rejection of the idea of any kind of distinction between husband and wife, or male or female, or that that these are things grounded in God's created order, and we do, in fact, need to address that. But the other concern, one that I think is quite possibly the bigger concern for us, is the danger of the church's overreaction to those things— Overcorrecting to them, and sort of inventing rules about how husbands and wives ought to live, as though, as long as we do something that the world will think is crazy, well then, we must be the ones who are right. Often, the overreaction to an error is just as dangerous or even more dangerous than the error itself. And I am persuaded, pastorally, that in conservative, reformed, and evangelical Christian circles, that reality is very much the case. That yes, there are real errors we are reacting to, but also we are in grave danger of falling in to the very errors that Paul was addressing in our efforts to correct them. So, we need to hear Scripture correcting all of us, confronting all of us, directing all of us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whenever you hear God's word in a way that simply has you pointing your finger elsewhere, there is danger. God's word addresses each And every one of us. But as it does so, it does so, as I hope, I pray, we will see together this morning, in the way of wisdom. There are many things this text does not answer. And one of the things I want to emphasize for us is that when it does not answer them, this is purposeful. And so there's going to be places where you're going to have questions remaining. But what about this? What does it mean for this? Well, part of what God's word is saying is, we don't get to have answers to that. We need to seek to live in the way of wisdom. And for the minister to answer some of those questions would, in fact, be an error, no matter how he answered them. Because what scripture is doing is saying, now seek to live in the way of wisdom, allowing that to look very different ways. So on the one hand, I'm acknowledging we can't say everything, and that's just unfortunate. We only have so much time. On the other hand, I'm saying some of the things we don't say are purposeful, that God's word leaves things open purposefully. And the real reason for all of that is that what Ephesians 5 is ultimately proclaiming is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our desire this morning must be to hear that gospel, to hear and receive that good news. So with that overly long introduction, here is the structure of what we are doing together this morning. The first two points are going to sound overly teacher-ish. If you are visiting with us, if you're new to our church, one of the things that's very important to us is that a sermon is more than teaching. A sermon is a living encounter with the living voice of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking through his word. It's about us being formed, not just having data in our minds. But it does include teaching. So in the first two points, you're going to feel that teaching. That is my intention but as we arrive at the third point, my goal is for it to feel a bit more like how a sermon should, as ultimately all of it pointing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, those three points. In our text from Ephesians chapter 5, scripture does three things. First, it affirms created reality. Second, it confronts distortions of that created reality. And third, It directs our attention to the future glory of the church. Three things. Affirms created reality. Second, corrects distortions of that created reality. And then third, points us to the future glory of the church. First, Scripture affirms created reality. We have the language, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Then verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those are the two key uh, uh, exhortations. And the, the mistake, the wrong move I want to protect us from up front is of viewing these as simply strange rules That God's word is imposing upon reality. As though creation is just there, humanity is just there, sort of neutral with no rules at all, and God's word comes and says, okay, here's some random things I want you to do. Wives do this, husbands do this. But this is never how we should hear how God's word speaks. God is the creator. He is the one who created all of reality, and what his word says is a description of how reality is meant to work, how reality at its best works. There is a created order, God created it, and his word is illuminating that, shining light on it. We need to hear this text in that way. In fact, that is one of the main questions the Apostle Paul was answering. In the early church, as the gospel of Jesus Christ came into a culture, one of the things people were asking is, does this change everything? Does this gospel about resurrection and new creation, does this upend the created order? Is it a rejection of the creation? One of the things the church was tempted by was to think repeatedly that what the gospel was doing was, cre- was rejecting the creation. And one of the main things the apostle Paul is affirming is saying, no, 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 The gospel restores creation. It restores things to how they were made to be. It does not reject it, but rather restores it. Aside from any of the specific things that the Apostle Paul says here, that is one of his main messages. God created the world good. Our sin distorts all of that. God's grace restores that nature. It restores the way God created the world to be. Now, that's a point maybe a bit too abstract for us. Well, let's make this more specific for us in our time and place. What does it mean that what God's word describing is a a description of reality, not just arbitrary rules imposed on reality? Well, when we feel like what God's word is saying is arbitrary rules imposed on reality, there there, there are two errors we fall into. Shockingly, there's two of them, one on each side. One error. One error is what we see in much of the culture around us. That is, to read what Scripture says, to say, well, that's a bunch of weird rules, and then to reject it. The other error is what we often see in the church. To read what Scripture says, to say, that's a bunch of weird rules, now let's make up a bunch of details in a bunch of weird ways how we're going to follow those weird rules. And that, quite often, is the conservative response. The saying, I don't know, it doesn't really make sense, it's these rules, but we're going to impose them. We need to hear what God's word is saying in a different way. Neither rejecting them as just rules, but neither affirming them as just rules. Rather, hearing God's word orienting us to reality. What the scriptures are doing is orienting us to a reality expressed in our embodiedness, who we are as human beings, as constituting callings that God has given to us, especially in particular relationships. God's word is telling husbands and wives to look at the reality of who they are and to embrace that relationship they are embedded within. And here is why it is so important to hear God's word is orienting us to created reality, because that created reality can be expressed in many different ways. It can have a diversity of expressions, different cultures, different times and places, different relationships, different personalities, different characters that we have. It is a created reality God is pointing us to that can be expressed in different ways. Now, do you see how that is the tension that it is hard to maintain? For those who reject the reality, we want to say, no, there is a created order God's word is orienting us to. But for those often in conservative reform circles who want to say, and now here's all the list of rules of how that should work, we say, no, I don't see that here. It's orienting us to a reality that can look in many different ways. We want to maintain both of those things. So, what is the reality God's word is orienting us to? We have the two exhortations. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's the language in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. All of these words confront us as sounding strange. And because they confront us as sounding strange, we are so tempted to then import all sorts of our own meanings into them and therefore either reject them or impose them in however strange of a way. How should we hear these words? Well, I want to make what often feels in these discussions like the very controversial point that we can derive the meaning of them from the text, that the text itself helps us understand them and that the text itself purposely says what it says and doesn't say what it doesn't say. The word submit, this is the word that sounds most troubling to us so often in our cultural time and place, but one of the keys to hearing this rightly is it would not have sounded strange. The time in which it was being said, it would simply have been heard as being said, affirm the ordered relationship in which you are living. It did not have with it a package of a whole bunch of specific actions to then do. It was rather an expression of affirming, receiving the relationship in which one is embedded. And how does our text uh, understand that relationship? Well, at least in all of the times I have heard this passage taught on, The thing that I think is most neglected is the verse that comes right before it. So here is the problem in some of our New Testament Bibles. We have all of these subheadings, right? So above verse 22, it says, here is the wives and husbands section. Well, obviously, that's true in all sorts of important ways. But what you've just done now is created a gap between verse 21 and verse 22. Now, this isn't quite as bad as the gap between the Old and New Testament, but it's a gap and we need to take seriously the possibility that the gap is misleading us. What does the word submit mean? Well, what did verse 21 just say to all Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So whatever submit means, it is the kind of thing that we are all to be doing to each other as brothers and sisters, submitting to one another. Embracing the relationships in which God has placed us, and doing so in a way that receives, well, what did the text just say before that? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the, heart, to the Lord with your heart. Now, I want to say something from that that's going to sound crazy, maybe, to some of us, but is one of the most obvious conclusions from this text. Whatever the word submit means, It is something that all of us are to be doing for and with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. A husband and wife are brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever submit means, it includes, as brothers and sisters in Christ, husbands submitting to their wives. Now, that's not what is said here, but it's obviously assumed in verse 21 in our relationship together precisely as brothers and sisters. Now, in the context of that, Paul says there are other specific relationships we are in that have their own kind of ordering. And so he goes on to address wives in particular. But this also should strike us. Who does he address first? Wives. This would have been shocking in Greco-Roman culture. This would have been shocking that the wives are being addressed at all. In Greek and Roman culture, the pater familias, the head of the home, the man, he was the only one you addressed. Everything went through him. You gave him instructions. And so if what you were doing was affirming the cultural order of the day, you would have said, husbands, make sure your wives do what they're supposed to do. And that is absolutely not what Paul says. And when he says that, it is confronting, indeed, in a sense, undermining the cultural order of the day. That he assumes that in the covenant assembly, in the gathered assembly, husbands and wives are there together, and that wives are addressed directly by God's word, not through their husbands, not through the head of the home. In fact, he never uses the words head of the home. Notice that. Rather, all of them are addressed side by side. Moreover, wives submit to your own husbands. This also. Was radically countercultural. This was an attack upon what was assumed of the day that men were superior to women. And instead, he says, no, no, there is no man woman distinction happening here. It is an individual wife and her individual husband. And when he says that, he is saying very directly, women, you're not submitting to anyone else. That whatever is being spoken of has to do with a relationship between husband and wife, and it's in the context of what he just said about the whole church submitting to one another, and a context in which husband as head through whom you speak has just been undermined because he's addressing the wife. All of this should be qualifying how we hear that word submit and what it means. What is being said here is countercultural, controversial but not in the way we often think. It was controversial precisely in the way it was attacking the ordinary expectations of the hierarchy of the culture, all in the direction of affirming the place and the status of the wife in the Christian home. Okay. But what does the word submit mean? Again, we need to answer in terms of the context of the text. Paul gives us two examples of the relationship that is the model for what all of this means. What does it mean for the wife to embrace the order of relationship in which she is placed? A husband and wife together are placed. Well, there are two that Paul speaks of. There is Christ, and there is Adam and Eve in the allusion to creation. And actually, referring to Christ is referring to Adam because Christ is the second Adam, the one who reveals most what Adam was supposed to be. So when Paul describes what this relationship is to look like, when he he actually gives instructions for actual actions of what should be done, what does he say? Well, here he addresses the husband. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Remember, what are we asking? What is this ordered relationship to which the wife is called to submit? It is precisely this. Paul describes it in the text. We don't have to bring in outside weird rules. We ask, what does the text actually say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What is the relationship at Christ's particular role? It is the relationship of love and sacrifice a kind of protecting, a place of, he is the one who is cultivating the overall thing of Christ and the church. That is what Christ is doing. And Paul points to that as what is distinct in the husband-wife relationship. The second example is Adam and Eve at creation. The entire creation story is alluded to when Paul in verse 31 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh well, what was Adam supposed to do in the garden? What was that relationship? Well, there's two main things we can say based on Christ as the second Adam. Adam is the one who should have fought off the serpent to defend the garden from the evil it had invaded. And once Adam and Eve had fallen, once Eve had been deceived by the serpent, it was Adam's job, we know this from Christ, to have sacrificed himself in her place. Adam failed at both of those jobs. That is what Christ does faithfully. Paul points those examples as what this relationship is. What are all of those things? It is, whatever that word head means, is a kind of taking responsibility for the overall health of the relationship, husband and wife together, spiritually, but not just spiritually. Dr. Garcia summed it up in this way, that the husband has the obligation, per Christ and Adam, to get in the way when there is danger to get in the way when there is spiritual or otherwise danger to the relationship. And these are the themes, here's my point, that are present in the text itself. So many other things that get said are being brought in from elsewhere. Now there are other texts that can be dealt with on their own terms, they're often making different points, but what is present here? Understand the words in terms of the text. As one scholar says, The meaning of head and submit is underdetermined, meaning it leaves all sorts of questions, and that is purposeful, because this heart of the matter that is in the text can be allowed to look in different ways. This is not about who's the boss or who has the final say. It's not about 1950s conservatism. This is about something that is grounded in created reality that finds expression in many different cultures, and we can sum it up in this way. I hope you've already been hearing some summing up, but let's try one more time. Husbands have a responsibility to sacrificially love in a way that is responsible for the relationship as a whole. And if we're going to listen to what the text itself says, submit simply means to receive that, to embrace that, to live in that ordered relation where the husband has that responsibility. This is what husbands and wives are being exhorted to do. The gospel does not undo the created order. This can look many different ways in many different cultures. The gospel affirms the created order is there and restores it by God's grace. As we've already alluded to, though, this text is not just affirming something, it is confronting something. And we need to hear that secondly, that scripture confronts the distortion of the created order. Paul is absolutely not in any possible way, shape, or form simply accommodating to the culture of the day. This is what so many will say who want to throw off the words of submit and head and this idea of an order relationship grounded in creation. They want to say, Paul is just accommodating the culture of the day. He doesn't want the church to be overly offensive, and so he goes along with this way of speaking even though he doesn't really agree with it. But at every point in Ephesians, Paul has been confronting the culture. He has been describing ways of living that are contrary to the culture. Why would he all of a sudden simply be, suddenly be accommodating the culture? And moreover, not only from the context do we see that, but we can see in what he says here that he is attacking repeatedly the expectations of the Greek and Roman culture of the time. There is the temptation to reject the whole created order to reject any distinction of husband and wife, any particular responsibility the husband has spiritually. There's a temptation to reject that. There's also the temptation to abuse the created order. And Paul addresses both. He does so wisely. He does so clearly. The overall focus of this text, strikingly so, is on overturning, attacking the distortions of the order Especially those distortions that tended to take, in, take advantage of those who are most vulnerable. And he attacks them in a way that they are transformed by the gospel. We've already seen examples of this. In the culture Paul was addressing, the head of the home, the pater familias, had absolute authority. Absolute. And Paul is undermining that, questioning that, attacking, confronting that at every turn. We've already seen examples Wives, this is about you and your husband. This isn't about men and women generally. He, said, he addresses wives first, acknowledging that they are equally participants in the covenant assembly and therefore ought to be addressed directly in the covenant assembly. And then the focus of the passage, all the examples where he's saying how what you actually should do, is aimed at the husband. And all of it is said in a way that undermines, confronts the expectations of the culture. He does not tell husbands to make sure their wives maintain some sort of role in some particular way. He doesn't. He doesn't say it at all. He says, husbands, here's what you're supposed to do. What what does he call them to do? Two things, to love and to sacrifice. These are not the two things that would have risen to the top if you were a conservative of the day trying to maintain the order of hierarchy of husband and wife and what the man was supposed to be. These were two things that attacked what was the commonly affirmed ways of speaking of the day. Husbands, however you want to understand the reason at the time, whether it be because of... greater, generally greater physical strength, whether it be because of the legal status they had in the culture, had many opportunities to take advantage, to abuse those who were more vulnerable, including their wives. And Paul is attacking precisely that dynamic. But notice the nuance with which he is both affirming the order, but attacking the distortion of the order. The two things that we are tempted to veer between— affirming the order but attacking the distortion of it. And everything he says here about love, about cherishing, about nourishing, about sacrifice, about giving of yourself is a turning upside down the way that order was used. Paul says to those who in this particular culture expression expression had a place of authority, he says you must use that for the good of others. He says that must be used as a way of giving of yourself for the sake of the other. And what are the two models for that? Well, again, at this point, he's not introducing arbitrary rules. He's orienting to reality. He gives the example of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who gives of himself. He says this is what the husband is called to be doing. And he grounds it in creation. In the same way, verse 28 Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Notice how he says that what we see in the gospel is a revealing of something kind of obvious about reality. He says to the husbands tempted to abuse their place, tempted to abuse the status that they had in this culture, he says, not only does this fail the example of Christ, but he says it makes no sense. That you are bound together as one flesh, that is who in the created order you were called to be, so that the loving of one is in a sense loving yourself because of that unity together. Again, verse 31 is quoting Genesis. And so even at this point where Paul is saying the gospel is transforming the relationship, he says it in a way that points to what has always been the case. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is saying if you look at the very intimate character of the relationship, it is obvious that this must be defined by self-sacrificial, self-giving love and cherish and nurture. That the thing Christ shows us, shows us something wise about created reality. And that wisdom about reality confronts all of those distortions. And all of that ultimately is grounded in the creation of man and woman together in the image of God. We read from Genesis chapter 1, man and woman together made in God's image. Really the more compelling place is chapter 2, where God says of Adam, it is not good that he be alone. The one thing not good in creation is the fact that Eve was not created yet. And Eve was created as the answer to that not good thing. And so here's what I want to bring in so many themes from Dr. Garcia last weekend. That when Genesis 1 and 2 say the woman is made in God's image, it's not saying humanity is in God's image. And the woman is is an example of humanity and therefore she is as well. It's rather saying the woman as woman is in God's image. That there is something about who God is that is reflected in woman such that man is incomplete. That there's something about, about woman, about femininity, that itself is expressing the image of God. And so Dr. Garcia took us through all of those examples of scriptures. Uh, one we actually just sang and praised the Lord the Almighty, spreading his wings of a feminine image for God's care for his people, God's relationship with his people, and so on. Lying beneath all that Paul says is that affirmation anti the distortions of Greek and Roman culture, of the full humanity of precisely the woman made in God's image. So, how do we put all of this together? Well, the reason it's hard to put all together is there is something here to confront every culture. There is something here to confront every sensibility, to challenge every time and place to live faithfully in this way. And we need to make sure we hear all of that to a culture that would reject our embodied callings. Ephesians 5 comes and says that we are not aimless and meaningless individuals having to invent our identity on our own, but that there is the good news of a good creator who in our very embodiedness gives us callings and vocations and the relationships we are embedded in gives us callings and vocations to live in a particular way. And so for husbands, the language of head means to take that spiritual responsibility for the good of the relationship after the model of Christ and Adam. And for wives, the word submit means minimally, there could be multiple expressions, but minimally to embrace precisely that headship, to live within that ordered relationship. But all of this admits of a wide diversity of how it might look in different times and places. To a culture that would use order relations to abuse Paul overturns cultural expressions time and again. His call to the pater familias of Roman culture was the exact opposite of the stereotypical manly man of the day. And he uses not only Christ, but that grounding in creation in Adam to confront and overturn those distortions. All of this in a way that points us to Christ and proclaims the gospel. Indeed, thirdly, Scripture directs our attention to the future glory of the church. This is perhaps the most neglected part of this passage, is verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is profound? What is referring to Christ and the church? Everything he just said about marriage. Indeed, verse 31, that creation groundedness. So he's he's quoting Genesis and he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So here we are with all of our delightful cultural questions, all the ways in which so many of us are thinking different things from the person right down the pew from us about how all of this should work, all the ways in which we're disappointed that Pastor Nick has not answered more questions, that Paul didn't answer more questions, and meanwhile, what does Paul say he's been talking about the entire time? The gospel. He says this is about Christ and the church, and he says I am saying it refers to, the, 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 whole, the whole point, the reason he's been discussing it is that glory of the church. The word mystery here is beautiful. It's beautiful because it's not used the way we normally use it. We hear mystery, we think of something we don't know that we need to figure out, right? We say, I don't know, it's a mystery. But Paul's use of mystery is something in, 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 the, in his letters is of something that was once unknown that now in Christ has been revealed, Mystery speaks of what has been made known in the gospel that once was not known as Israel waited upon God's promises, that the mystery is what he is announcing having been revealed. Christ makes known the mystery of God, having kept hidden through the ages, and he's saying that all of this is an expression of that. And the glory of that is that the verse right before he says that is quoting Genesis, That there is something in the very created order from the very beginning of creation that was really about Christ and the church. And it's not that, you know, Paul wants to give some, again, random rules, moral instruction to a particular culture. He looks for an illustration. He says, man, what does this look like? I guess, well, let's use an example. It's kind of like Christ and the church. It's not what he's doing. He says this mystery is profound. He says God had the intention from eternity past, of the eternal fellowship of Christ and his church. God had the intention of eternity past, of the glory of the church in the new creation. The beauty of the church described in Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21 and the the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, bedecked gloriously as a bride and her, her glory is described. This was the glory God intended of that new creation, Christ in fellowship with his people. And from the very beginning of the creating of the world, he embedded within the world a picture, an image of that future glory. And he did that in creating humanity as Man and wife, as men and women, as husband and wife. And that as husband and wife, the wife in particular, woman in particular, femininity in particular, is pointing forward to that glory of the church. Revelation 19. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Chapter 21, verses 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Eve, in a way that Adam was not, was a promise of that future glory of the church. And as Paul explains what marriage ought to be, he roots it in that created order, the created order itself having been a promise of what God would one day do in Christ and what he will do in future future glory when Christ returns. This is why we must counter-culturally affirm the order, and this is why we must counter-church-culturally so often uh, 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 reject the abuses of the order and affirm the diversity of ways it can be expressed Because all of it is ultimately about, not particular marriages, but about the glory of Christ in the church, of which our relationships are merely a temporary picture. And you see, brothers and sisters, it is essential in a topic, anything like this, that we hear this situated precisely within that good news. Your marriage is not ultimately about you. You're not being married and desiring marriage is not ultimately about you. The imperfections of our marriage, the way in which we sin against each other, our brokenness, all of these are reminders that these are just temporary arrangements pointing forward to something greater, to a future glory. That all of our time in all of our relationships, as individuals, as friends, as part of the community of the church, those who were called to be married, parents and children, all of them are pointing forward to that future glory of our perfect fellowship with Christ in the new creation to come. And you see, brothers and sisters, that must be our witness in the broader culture. This is something Dr. Garcia addressed very pointedly. I simply want to affirm his point. That this is not about wins in the culture wars. This is not about wins in the political arena and how we can gain certain things or protections or any such thing. We must beware the danger of betraying the truly distinct character of the gospel of Jesus Christ in that mode of engagement. This is rather our desire for our fellow human beings to be rescued from the distortions of sin that we all suffer from. And to know the dignity and the glory as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve of living toward that future glory of Christ and the church. Our desire is for our fellow human beings to know that joy, to know that fruitfulness, to have the promise of that future and roots to what God is doing in Christ. Every one of us, whatever our circumstances, needs this good news: that yes, we are broken and messed up and sin-sick. And God in Christ has acted to restore us to perfect fellowship with him. And marriage is given as a picture, an image pointing forward to that future glory. This is perhaps one of the most important things to remember for those who are navigating marriage and the reality of marriage, the challenges, the difficulties. We are all pilgrims on the way. We are all en route to a glory, the fullness of which we have not yet seen. And your marriage is a means by which God has given you to help get you there. You are given as a means by which to help your husband, to help your wife get there faithfully. It is not about your individual happiness or fulfillment in the moment, ultimately. It is about persevering as brothers and sisters in Christ. A friend of mine in a dedication from a book that he published has these words in the dedication to his wife. My companion, friend, and lover through this pilgrimage. Brothers and sisters, all of it is captured right there. A relationship on pilgrimage headed toward a future glory that affects the relationship, but it also decenters the relationship. That marriage is not the ultimate thing. That it points away from itself. And that it points toward, rather, that promised glory of the church in perfect fellowship with her Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the glory of your word for the way in which you direct us to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promise of the fellowship that that we will have in perfect glory in the new creation to come. We ask you in response to your word to give us your Holy Spirit that we might persevere faithfully along this way that you have given to us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.